welcome to the Justice Report. I'm your host, Jam. And I'm Salam. You've probably noticed that we haven't been here for a couple weeks. You can thank Special Session for that. And if you have, then thank you. And if you haven't, then I hope your tea gets cold and you wonder why you even got out of bed. Uh, was that a Dido rant? I don't even know what to do with that, Salam. Who can say where this road goes? Uh, maybe it goes to us talking about our weekend? Oh yeah, weekends as a parent are great because you get to go into them mentally fatigued from work and then you exit them physically fatigued from making sure your child doesn't kill himself when he's jumping off sofas and doing backflips off of tables. Anyways, how was your weekend, you peon? Did you just call me a peon? No, I was asking my son if he was peeing on me. Batson! Batson! Stop it! No! My weekend was pretty good, though. My mother's birthday was on Monday, so I spent some quality time with the family grilling out outside. Oh, nice, man. Wait a second. Was her birthday this past Monday? The 21st? Because I got to ask, Jim, do you remember? Remember what? The 21st night of September. Here we go. Love was changing the minds of pretenders. This is certainly a September to remember, Salam, because it'll go down as an incredibly sobering month during an exceptionally awful year. As things start to cool down with the coming of the fall, the economic fallout of COVID-19 is just starting to heat up. Nowhere is this felt harder than in the realm of evictions and housing. While there have been a number of federal policies put in place to save renters from eviction, these policies are far from comprehensive and have rapidly approaching expiration dates, putting large numbers of families at risk of being kicked out of their homes as a deadly pandemic continues to ravage the country. This, of course, will only exacerbate infection rates, which in turn will require stricter social distancing measures, which in turn will lead to another economic slowdown, which in turn, well, I think you see where the story's going. And poverty is both a vicious cycle and a spiral. And the COVID-19 pandemic only exposes how this affects us all. For today's show, we will sit down with Laura Wright, Equal Justice Works Housing Justice Program Fellow at the Virginia Poverty Law Center, to talk about evictions and renters' rights in the midst of this pandemic. So hold on to your hats, because few issues hit as close to home as this one does. This is the Justice Report. by Laura Wright, Equal Justice Works Housing Justice Program Fellow at the Virginia Poverty Law Center. Welcome to the Justice Report, Laura. Thank you for having me. So today we're talking about evictions in the wake of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. To start off, can you tell us a bit about what the eviction process looks like here in Virginia? Sure. So um, in Virginia, in order for your landlord to evict you, um, if, if from a residential property, they have to go through a series of steps with the court in order to do so. Um, and there's nine basic steps that your uh, landlord would have to take before they can evict you. Um, so if you want me to jump into those nine steps, we can run through those. Yeah, if you could just go through them very briefly, that'd be helpful. Sure. Um, so the first step would be your landlord has to give you um, a notice that you've defaulted on your lease somehow or that you violated your lease, whether this is because you've had a house guest stay too long or if you were late on your rent or didn't pay the full rent amount. And if it's because you didn't pay the full rent amount, they have to give you what's called a five-day notice, letting you know how much you owe, when you have to pay it by, um, and basically saying, if you don't pay us, 
um, we'll take steps to the court to evict you. And then if um, you don't remedy those lease violations, then they can file what's called a summons for unlawful detainer in the general district court. Um, and there'll be a sheriff who uh, puts that summons on your door, hands it to you in person, and they'll tell you uh, the date, time, and location of your first hearing. And then um, when you go to your court date, if you want to challenge the eviction, you can have the option to pay everything you owe before the court date or on the day of court uh, to try to avoid a judgment. Um, but if you lose your case, uh, the judge will grant the landlord what's called a judgment for possession. Um, this basically is saying that they found in favor of the landlord and the landlord can move forward with the next steps to evict you. Now, the landlord still have to wait 10 days during what's called an appeal period uh, before taking those next steps. So if you didn't agree with the judge's decision, you could appeal your case to the circuit court. Um, and if not, then the next step goes forward where the landlord can get what's called the writ of eviction. Um, basically, uh, it's a piece of a, a paper that the, uh, the landlord gets from the court and sends to the sheriff, instructing the sheriff to actually schedule a physical eviction. Now, Laura, um, when somebody mm -hmm. goes through um, the eviction process, uh, how often is it that their case goes to appeal? It is very rare. Um, that's because a number of factors. One of the most common reasons for someone to get an eviction is because they've been unable to pay rent. Um, and here in Virginia, um, unlawful detainers, which is the legal term for an eviction action, is one of the few cases where um, you can't get what's called appeal bond waiver. So if you want to appeal your case, you have to post a bond with the court for the amount of the judgment. Um, unlike other cases where you could get what's called a pauper's waiver if you don't have enough money, um, that's you can't do that in eviction cases, which makes it very rare indeed for a tenant to be able to appeal their case because they, they haven't been able to pay rent, they're probably not going to have the money to post an appeal bond. So in these situations, if the tenant isn't able to post an appeal bond and challenge the outcome of their case, um, that's when the landlord can move forward with the next step to get the writ of eviction, which is that piece of paper instructing the sheriff to schedule the physical eviction of the tenant. Um, again, a tenant might have a last ditch opportunity to pay everything they owe, including all the court costs and attorney's fees to try and stay. Um, but the sheriff will post a notice on your door or give it to you in person, letting you know the date and time that they will return to the property to evict you. And they have to give you at least 72 hours. Um, and if you're able to pay everything at least two days before that scheduled eviction, you might have the right to stay. Um, and if not, then the sheriff has to return that date and time that they told you they would um, to physically remove you from the property. So that sounds like a lot of steps that landlords have to take to physically evict someone, but we're constantly being told that Virginia and Richmond in particular is one of the eviction hubs in the United States. How do you account for all that with all these nine measures in place? Um, nine steps might seem a lot just trying to explain it quickly, but it's actually one of the fastest eviction processes in the country. Um, you know, in Virginia, if you're late, you know, five days and you don't pay, that landlord can start to take those steps. So for a lot of people who might get paid on a biweekly basis, they probably haven't even received that next paycheck to try to pay up the remaining what they owe. It's also very inexpensive to file for an eviction in Virginia. Um, and I know in other states it costs two to three times as much. And so those factors um, make it an easy collection method for landlords to take. So given that evictions are already pervasive in the Commonwealth, how has the pandemic affected it? 
Well, a lot of people are already very rent burdened, meaning that they're paying a large portion of their income towards rent. Um, and given the pandemic, which has hurt low wage earners the hardest, um, they've lost hours or lost their jobs completely. People who are already struggling and by the skin of their teeth are now just um, in a really tough spot. You know, the state has tried to come forward with money for, with rent relief money to help people, but it's just not enough money for the number of people who are in need. And we know that people um, are in long waiting lines trying to get access to rent relief funds. And so it's uh, it's basically, it's compounding a problem. Um, and I think once the courts have dealt with a backlog of cases, whenever the courts were closed, we're gonna see really high eviction filings. You know, for now people, they've used up whatever stimulus check they got, if they got it, they've used up, you know, any unemployment benefits that have now run out. People have been maxing out credit cards to try to pay rent. And all those last ditch resources are, you know, nearing the end. And so we're soon gonna be in a really, even much larger eviction crisis than what we ever saw before. Laura, you mentioned something about moratorium. Uh, what's that about? So in the beginning of September, the Centers for Disease Control issued um, an eviction moratorium for residential property uh, for non-payment of rent cases. Um, this is part of their effort to stop the spread of COVID. Um, the thinking being that if you get evicted, then you're either going to end up homeless or doubling up with another person, which um, increases the spread of COVID. So under this uh, moratorium, uh, there's a couple steps a tenant would have to take. It's not automatic and it only applies to a limited set of circumstances. So we hear a lot of nightmare stories about really trifling landlords out there, right? They do all kinds of coercive measures to try to get their tenants to leave. Um, I was wondering if you can talk about some of the tactics that landlords take to get their tenants to leave and the legality of those tactics. So I think, you know, just the, uh, even if a landlord takes, goes through the required legal process, it's very intimidating. I mean, the words summons for unlawful detainer of a piece of paper coming for court, those are, you know, very criminal sounding words. You're getting a paper from the court saying you must appear in court and people get scared by that. And unlawful detainer, um, it's a legalese word that sounds like a crime. Um, so the whole, phrasing of evictions is um, very intimidating. So oftentimes when someone receives that first notice um, and if they don't have the money to pay, they may not know that they have the right to defend their case and just leave the property. And for other landlords who are less scrupulous, um, they'll use other intimidation factors such as you know, changing the locks, um, moving out appliances onto the lawn. I've heard you know, shutting off water um, all of those still constitute an illegal eviction and tenants have the right to that legal process, even if they are behind on rent. Your landlord can't just go in and change the locks and cut off the water. So if you are a tenant that's dealing with those things, what can you do? Let's say you show up one day and the water shut off. What, what steps can you take to protect your rights as a renter? So there is something that you could file in your local court called a tenant's petition for relief from unlawful exclusion. I know that's a bit of a mouthful and there is a resource of what this is and how to fill out the form on our website at dplc.org. If you click on the COVID tab and under housing, there's a toolkit there. But basically this is something a tenant could file with the court and they can ask the judge a number of things. It could ask the judge to have, require the landlord to turn back on the water and restore other essential services like electricity, 
uh, order the landlord to let you back into the property. Um, you can also get damages. So if you get locked out of your home and you have to spend a night in a hotel or you know, buy food because you couldn't access the food in your home, you can ask the judge that the landlord compensate you for those costs as well. You know, Laura, you mentioned hotels and I just wanted to, you know, take a real quick side quest to that. A lot of uh, people who are in low, low income families might be in a hotel or a motel or an inn. Uh, what's, what's that about? How does that work? So under Virginia law, um, if you're living in a hotel or motel as your primary residence, um, whether or not you get treated as a tenant under the law, it depends on how long you've been staying there. So if you've been staying there for more than 90 days, you would be treated as any other tenant um, and you would have the protections of the Virginia Landlord Tenant Act, which is what requires that landlord to go through a legal process in order to evict you. However, if you've been living there less than 90 days, even if it is your primary residence, there just aren't adequate legal protections. So the hotel owner only needs to give you that five-day notice and then they can themselves move out your stuff, you know, re-key the door or take other steps without having to go through that full court process. Now, is that a, is that a failure of our safety net for people having to resort to staying in a hotel? Absolutely. And it's something that we hope to address in the next legislative session. Um, hotels and motels, people living there, it's, they're often known as the unseen homeless. Um, just because they have a roof over their head doesn't mean that they are without aren't without a home is often a place of last resort after someone has been evicted and they've been unable to find, you know, adequate housing afterwards, either because they have, you know, um, criminal conviction on their record or an eviction on their record that makes it difficult to find safe and stable housing. And so there are hundreds of Virginians living in hotels and motels right now, people who've been living there for years because they've been unable to find other housing. Um, but for someone who's been there less than 90 days, um, they're in a very vulnerable position. And you brought up, Laura, that a lot of these folks are in this situation because they might have a criminal history or they have an eviction already on their record. Can you talk about what happens when you get an eviction on your record in Virginia? Sure. Um, most landlords use uh, these tenant screening companies. They're kind of similar, like if you're applying for a car loan or a credit card, um, it gets reported both to the three credit bureaus. Um, and then there's these tenant screening companies that will pull all case filings against the tenant as you're applying for an apartment. Um, and there's some good tenant screening companies and then some that just are collect a whole bunch of information. So about a third of these tenant screening companies, even if there was an eviction filed against you and you ultimately won that eviction case or the landlord dismissed it, it might only pull your record to say, hey, there was an eviction case period. And a landlord could decide not to rent to you simply because there was an eviction case. Others include a few more details about whether you lost the eviction case or if it was ultimately dismissed. Um, but those factors that can definitely be a black mark on your credit report when you're trying to apply for subsequent housing. Is this a common practice we see across the country or is it particular to Virginia? Um, absolutely, it is definitely a practice that we see across the country. Um, you know, other states have tried to take actions to deal with this problem, uh, whether it's through allowing tenants to expunge their eviction records, similar to what we see in the criminal context, to where if you had a case that you won or was ultimately dismissed, um, you could request to get that expunged. 
Now, Virginia passed something this past legislative session uh, to take a look at that, but it won't go into effect for a couple years, I believe in January 2022. Um, so we're hoping in the meantime to work out the mechanics to make it as seamless as possible for tenants to be able to get um, an eviction record expunged where they ultimately want their case. This is a great moment to remind people that the Virginia Poverty Law Center is a nonprofit organization. So we keep going on thanks to donors like you. We've been around for over 40 years fighting for our low-income neighbors and all those policies swooped in to help those who lost their incomes during this pandemic. So do your neighbors and hey, maybe even your future self a favor by donating to VPLC at vplc.org slash donate. And do us a favor by leaving a review on your podcast app. Now, back to the show. Lately, we've all been watching a whole lot of Netflix with the pandemic and catching up on the programs. And I was flipping through it last month and I noticed the Clint Eastwood classic, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly was on. Um, you mentioned earlier a little bit about this CDC moratorium. Could you give us the good, the bad, and the ugly on the CDC moratorium? So the good is that um, at least some people within the federal government are taking seriously um, the health cost of an eviction. Um, you know, if you read through the uh, CDC's moratorium, it lays out pretty clearly the health consequences if someone is evicted. You know, right now, the best way to stay um, safe and healthy is to stay housed. Um, if someone's evicted and they end up in homeless shelters or, you know, living with another friend or family, that increases your risk of exposure. Um, so the best way to stay safe is to stay, stay housed. So the good thing is that um, there is some people who are concerned about these health consequences and taking actions to address it. Um, the unfortunate thing about the order is that it only applies to people who um, haven't been able to pay their rent. So it doesn't cover other types of lease violations. Um, so it doesn't cover you if you've had a family member staying with you for an extended period of time in violation of your lease or other you know, criminal contact, conduct on the property. Um, it's also not automatic. So if someone wants to take advantage of this, um, there are some steps they need to take to give notice to their landlord. And we can go over those if you'd like. Yeah, if you could just go over those, that, that'd be awesome. Sure. Um, so there's, like I said, it's not an automatic moratorium. In order for this to apply to you, um, you've had to have lost income or had a reduction in your income. Um, unlike some other um, state protections, it's not, it doesn't require that that loss of income has to do with COVID. Um, it could be, you know, any sort of loss of income or if you've had exceptionally high medical expenses. You also um, have to have income that's less than $99,000. Um, or if you received a stimulus payment, you would qualify. Um, or if you made too little in 2019 to have to have file a federal tax return, you would qualify. Um, and lastly, you have, if you were evicted, um, you would be homeless or have to move with others. So if, um, even if you have had a reduction in income, you don't make enough, um, but you could find other housing, then this would not apply to you. Um, I will note that if you were evicted and have to live in a hotel, that would be counted as you being homeless. So this would apply in that circumstance. Did I think um, that if in 2019, if you did not make enough money to file a tax return, that this moratorium does not apply to you? You, you, do, you? you would qualify. I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. That's all right. I must have misunderstood you. Yes. So yeah, the, when I talk about um, as far as having 
uh, low income it applies to anyone who's earned less than $99,000 who received a stimulus payment um, as part of that CARES Act funding and or if you made too little in 2019 to have had to file a federal tax return, um, any of those will qualify you. Now, when is that moratorium getting lifted? Um, that goes through December 31st of this year. So starting January 1st, a landlord could then resume actions. Um, okay. And just, yeah. Now, are there, was, is, that, is that parallel to the other moratorium that's in effect as well? Um, are you talking about the CARES Act moratorium? Right, yeah. Um, this is something separate. So that CARES Act moratorium was part of that CARES stimulus package, um, and that um, is partly expired. So the eviction moratorium part is lifted, but if you're in a covered property, that landlord still has to give you a 30 days notice rather than the usual five days. So this is um, separate from that. Okay. So as people are trying to, you know, figure their lives out, and then there's these two moratoriums that uh, may apply to them, what can they do if they feel that there's going to be a threat of eviction? Like what steps can they take to protect themselves over the next few months? Well, the first thing I would do is um, if you visit vplc.org and click on the COVID tab under housing, there is a sheet about this CDC eviction moratorium that goes in a little bit more detail about how you can make sure that this applies to you and what steps you need to take. Um, you know, the first of those is continue to pay as much rent as you can. Um, we understand everyone's in a really tight position, but as far as priorities of payments, um, rent should be at the top of that list. Even if you can't pay the full rent amounts, you know, make your you know, most reasonable efforts to do so. Um, then they should apply for any governmental rental or housing assistance. Um, there's a Virginia Rent and Mortgage Relief Program. Um, there are local administrators um, who are distributing those funds. Um, so again, if you visit our website, there's a link in there where you can look up where the local program administrator for your area. Um, I will note that a lot of them um, are behind on processing requests. So we just encourage everyone to stay patient um, and they will get back to you, um, but definitely reach out as soon as possible. Now, Ikea recently put a couple million dollars into the work that we do, uh, or rather the work that you all do uh, to uh, help tenants out. Can you talk a little bit about this this grant that they gave? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll let you know the best that I'm aware of it. So Ikea, um, you know, heard about this eviction tsunami that we're all expecting to see and in recognition of, you know, families that are hurting and wanting to make sure that people are housed. They reached out to the Northern Administration to see how they could be of help. And the Northern Administration directed it towards the Legal Services Corporation of Virginia. Um, and the government decided to match the funds that they're uh, donating. So there's $2 million from Ikea. And then the governor and administration matched that with $2 million from, um, I believe it's from the CARES Act funds or some other emergency pot of funding. And this is going to go to help hire uh, 20 new housing attorneys over the next two years. Um, they'll be distributed across the state uh, with more going to the really high evicting areas. Um, as we've seen, having an attorney um, represent you in an eviction hearing can make all the difference in the world. Um, you know, the majority of eviction cases at court see um, the tenant isn't, isn't even there, which could be because they're dealing with childcare or they've already moved out or they're working um, that results in defaults against tenants. Um, and even where a tenant is present, uh, the success rate of having an attorney is just vastly 
higher than a tenant who does not. That's great news. I'm sorry? Where can someone that is facing eviction or fear that they are facing eviction go to obtain an attorney? Sure. Um, so if you just have um, want some basic advice about your eviction case, you can call our eviction legal helpline at one eight three three no evict. Um, and if it's a situation where it sounds like you do need a attorney to represent you in court, they can do a direct referral to your local legal aid, or you can reach out to your local legal aid program directly um, by calling one. 866-LEGAL-AID, um, L-E-G-L-A-I-D, and I don't remember what the numbers are for that, but that'll direct you to your local legal aid program. Great, and to put the shoe on the other foot for a second, I'm someone that thinks it's actually immoral to be a landlord because you sit around while you're leeching off of your tenants' hard work, uh, but a lot of advocates for landlords say that it's unfair for them to suffer right now and to not be paid during this time, especially folks that have their primary source of income in, in renting properties. Uh, what do you say to those critics? I would say that the cost of human life or the value of human life outweighs their temporary uh, financial strain. There are so many safety nets put in place for businesses and additional uh, steps before they could actually lose their property. Whereas someone losing the roof over their head, the, you know, one of the few things that's keeping them healthy right now, um, it's so tenuous. And the need to protect tenants during this time far as outweigh whatever short-term financial strain landlords are going through. Beautifully said, Lauren. If we don't do something to stop these evictions during the duration of the pandemic, how do you think that would affect public health? I think you would start to see, you know, more, you know, uh, hot spots in high evicting areas, um, particularly among people who have to go live with, you know, a family member or friend to stay safe. Um, additionally, you know, our homeless shelters across the state are already overwhelmed. Many only operate seasonally uh, during the winter months, so there aren't as many beds during the summer, and it's harder to socially distance um, in a homeless shelter. I know that a number have, you know, early on during the pandemic enlisted the help of local hotels to house people, but as we mentioned, there are those um, limited to protections for people who are living in hotels and motels. So, you know, if you have someone who's homeless because they have some sort of um, mental health issue and they get put up in a hotel, there's nothing to protect them if the hotel decides they don't want to deal with this person with a mental health issue and they can just kick them out. Um, so that's, you know, one huge thing that we'll probably see. And then it just puts further stress on the rental housing market of people, you know, they're always going to need housing. It's just a question is, if there is enough housing. That is the billion dollar question uh, presented by Laura. Uh, thank you so much, Laura, for uh, your time today. Uh, we were joined today by Laura Wright, Equal Justice Works Housing Justice Program Fellow at the Virginia Poverty Law Center, who's truly shown us that, Laura, you do have the right stuff. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. So Salam, what did we learn this time? Well, tenants have a lot of protections that they simply may not know about, and landlords are preying on that ignorance. So share this episode with everybody you know. 
you never know when that one connection might save somebody from eviction. And if you or someone you know is living in fear of eviction, please call the Virginia Poverty Law Center's eviction hotline for free advice from one of our attorneys. You can reach them at 1-833-NO-EVICT. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please go on to Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review today. This would not only boost our show's ratings, but also get the show in front of more people just like you so we can spread the great work that the Virginia Poverty Law Center is doing and get those resources in front of more people. That's right, Salam. We're all in this together because remember, it's never just us for justice. This is the Justice Report.